0: take a network break. Grab a virtual donut as we scrounge through the grab bag of IT news. We've got stories on Cloudflare, an acquisition, an update on the Broadcom VMware deal, and more. We're sponsored today by IT Pro TV you can start or grow your IT career with online training from IT Pro TV learn IT pass your certs and get a great job visit itpro.tv/networkbreak for 30% off all plans use the promo code networkbreak at checkout that's itpro.tv/networkbreak and use that promo code networkbreak at checkout to save 30% off all plans after the news, there's a sponsored Tech Bytes conversation with Nokia to discuss how its SR Linux network OS supports streaming telemetry to give you an accurate and granular data on the state and health of your network devices. And by the way, you can join the Packet Pushers and Glueware for a live stream virtual event taking place June 28th. That's Tuesday after this show uh, publishes. Gluware and customers are going to discuss how Gluware enables real world network automation uh, and also new capabilities and features in the Gluware platform. You can sign up for it at packetpushers.net/slash live.
1: Yeah, Glueware's made a bit of a difference here. They've made brought some new tools to the market since we did this a year ago. And one of them is what they call robotic process automation. I kind of think of it as like a low-code uh-huh. solution where they can integrate a wide range of tools together, and they can actually be a way for you to get service now to talk to your 20-year-old Cisco iOS devices or get your ACI talking to your help desk. And they have the capabilities to do that inside of the product. So very interesting discussion, I should think. So it might be worth joining in. Yeah, it's just
0: an hour, and we divide it up into short 10-minute segments. There'll be demos, there'll be presentations and so on. So check it out. Uh, Again, PacketPusher.net slash live. Hmm.
1: Yeah, it's not a webinar.
0: webinar. Live stream. (laughs) Different. (laughs) All right. uh, First news, Cloudflare has announced new capabilities in its Cloudflare 1 SASE offering. New features include phishing protection, data loss prevention, and a cloud access security broker, or CASB. uh, Cloudflare is competing with the likes of Palo Alto Networks, Fortinet, Zscaler, and Cisco.
1: Yeah, not much to say here, really. This is a cloud-hosted service. You still have to send your traffic off to Cloudflare for it to be processed, which is not unusual. What is missing here, of course, is that this is a point solution and that it's cloud only. So you either have to have an SD-WAN with some way to forward the traffic into Cloudflare as an option, which is what we saw from a number of SD-WAN vendors before they developed their own threat inspection tools. Um, Or you have to be a Cloudflare customer, almost exclusively a Cloudflare customer. And it just makes sense to keep using Cloudflare for this as well. Um, or if your company is completely software only, so you have no day center, everything's in the cloud, and you just configure your clients to forward all the traffic into Cloudflare. Or if everybody's fully remote, this is when it sort of makes sense. They've got a, a bit of an explanation on their website, which helps you understand. Uh, so if you have MPLS, or if you have a branch office, you still have to put an appliance and say, send this traffic to Cloudflare. L- limited use case because of that, So, I, but I guess it's not a huge amount of work for Cloudflare because pretty much reuses a whole bunch of stuff they've already got, like CDN, DDoS, application firewalling, and so forth. So straightforward right, enough, and it takes I think. advantage
0: of all the POPs they've built out, which is part of that SASE element. You want to be mm. able to forward your traffic to the closest physical uh, area to make sure you're mm. reducing latency as you add all these security services onto that traffic flow.
1: Yeah, Cloudflare's challenge here will be convincing third parties, I think, by and large, who are to use Cloudflare SaaS, whereas... Um, you know, that market has been pretty well filled up. Palo and Fortinet found it easy enough to build their own. Juniper's building right. out their own. Cisco, of course, had them from a few years ago. Zscaler has been, you know, wandering around the market for oh. five to 10 years trying to sign up customers. So the challenge for Cloudflare will be, how do you, how do you send traffic in and why would I use you compared to others? And I'm not sure I felt anything compelling about that, unless you, did you see anything?
0: I mean, I believe Cloudflare does have an agent you can put on end-user devices to get remote Mm -hmm. traffic in there. They've also got something called Magic WAN, which I think has uh, SD-WAN-like capabilities. I don't know if it's actually a physical appliance, but a way to direct uh, branch Mm -hmm. traffic uh, into a Cloudflare pop. So they are assembling all of the other pieces around uh, that you need to, for the direction of traffic into the Cloudflare Pop, um, but yeah, it's coming together. Just like I think Juniper, they're sort of assembling it all together, and same way with Cisco, who did it all through acquisitions. So.
1: Yeah, that's right, and it really is just a repurposing of a lot of existing technologies by and large. So, you know, if you're looking at a vendor and thinking that SaaS is magic, it's not. It's uh, more like an armpit <laughs> than a than something special at this point again. the yeah.
0: game. I mean, at this point, it is about you know yeah. what kind of security investments you already have with a potential vendor. Uh, and what kind of security mm-hmm. capabilities you needed that, that they have and yeah. how well they do it. I think that's the other thing we're going to be talking about with SASE going forward. Is mm.
1: Well, 10 years ago, you used to go and buy blue coat proxy servers right. and beef up your WAN so all the traffic would come down and you'd log all the traffic that went off to the internet and the traffic going to the data center and all that sort of stuff. But this is a replacement yes. for that. you
0: don't have to buy a bunch of appliances. So,
1: yeah, So fine. Good. Well done, Cloudflare. You know,
0: following the market. Following the market. Links in the show notes if you want more. Uh, Sticking with Cloudflare, the company had an outage this month that affected 19 data centers that happened to handle a majority of its global traffic. Uh, The company released a post-mortem online, said the outage was caused by a bad update that affected how it advertised BGP prefixes. In other words, it was an internal misconfiguration and sort of the the old foot gun problem.
1: (laughs) To break things is human, but to really, really break things just requires automation. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's kind of the motto I have in my back of my mind here. Um, this, this outage report's actually super interesting because they go into a lot of detail and explain that the ECMP spine inside of their data centers, which connects all of their bare metal servers, they <coughs> propagated a route wrongly in the automation. And then they even explain that as they were, had identified the reason for the outage and started to work through the recovery process, the engineers got it cross-purposes and actually started to unconfigure the changes, and um, which I thought was a really good piece of transparency. It does lead to trust from people like us um, in Cloudflare. When they say something's not a thing, you tend to believe them. Uh, you don't tend to sit there and say, oh, yeah, Cloudflare they would always say that sort of stuff.
0: Yeah, I have to say, as you mentioned, the, the blog goes into a lot of details mm. uh, that you don't nece- mm. always get from vendors or providers mm. when there is an outage, so I think that transparency is smart because it does help build trust, and of course, <laughs> to air is in fact human. Uh, so yes,
1: yeah. The interesting part here is um, if you go through the outage, it would be interesting to get your team together and walk through the outage, and it could be a useful learning opportunity to think about how would your organization do better, and talk around the you know the lunch table or even have a meeting and say you know do you understand what this means you know how would you go about fixing it and. You know, maybe there's some lessons to be learned there from looking at other people. It's doing a post mortem on somebody else's outage, is a is a learning experience. So maybe have a, maybe yeah, do check that? Check it out.
0: Uh, moving on, Johnson controls, they make HVAC and building control systems. They've announced they're going to acquire tempered networks. Tempered networks create secure connections for devices such as IoT devices, medical equipment and industrial controls. Uh devices essentially sit behind a hardware or virtual appliance. That creates encrypted tunnels to prevent uh, to protect communications. The company is using the host identity protocol to create unique identities for the devices, and then you can create policies around which devices are allowed to communicate with which other devices.
1: Yeah, Tippet Networks is a company that uh, we talked to back in Heavy Networking 574. If you want to get more into details of the HIP protocol, the host identity protocol, the unique thing about it is it builds an overlay network that not only does the encryption, but it also builds identity yep. into it. So... Uh, But it's not got any of the overhead of IPsec. So it's encrypted and it's identity, it's authenticated and all that stuff. And it's really quite a sophisticated way to go about building an overlay network that doesn't care what's in the middle path. You don't need to use Stun or any of that sort of stuff. So it's really uh, quite sophisticated. Uh, in that sense. And they've been um they pivoted away from S D WAN. They did go into S D WAN for a while, and then they pivoted to building management systems, which was a uh, much better suited. And what probably the unique thing about HIP is it can be a protocol stack in a device. And, you know, it sits over the top of IP, but you would just add that little shim and then all of a sudden you've got a an overlay network. And that makes sense for IoT. So where you've got you know, thin devices doing temperatures monitoring or building management systems and so forth. This allows you to set up an overlay network, very reliable, very trustworthy, very secure. And that's what they did. And Johnson Controls is exactly that, building management systems. So there's a definite synergy there.
0: There is. I sort of wonder what might happen for other customers who uh, don't work with Johnson Controls, what that issue is going to be. But, you know, Mm -hmm. Tempered, I think, is sort of, they have built an interesting product. It was sort of very much focused on IoT and, Mm. uh, you know, device control systems. So this, I think, makes sense as an acquisition. It's a nice fit for them, Uh, in particular because you don't need to actually run software on the client to make it work. They can do it all, you know, via proxies, essentially.
1: Yeah, that's right, which is really neat. So you can sort of do it by proxy, you can do it by agent. They can even produce a, you know, a a software tool that you can license to embed in your code for your IoT and uh, quite sophisticated way of doing things. It's a a natural synergy, but, you know, see how it works out. I guess we'll ju- we probably won't hear from them again because they will disappear <laughs> into Johnson Controls in the building management vertical would be my I gut feel. I kind of think so, but, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. The acquisition
0: price wasn't disclosed. Tempered Networks has raised $56.1 million in venture funding since it was founded in 2012. And just of note, founder Jeff Hussey was also a founder of F5. So some uh, history there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as always, more links in the show notes. I, we did do a, a heavy networking with them, and I've also been covering them on the blog uh, repeatedly. So, a few links for you if you're interested in finding out more. Uh, this episode of Network mm-hmm. Break is brought to you by IT Pro TV. You can start or grow your IT career with online training from IT Pro TV. And there's a special offer for Network Break listeners you can sign up and save 30% off all plans there are more than 500,000 open cybersecurity roles so you can become a cybersec pro with online training it's never too late to start a new uh, career in IT or move up the ladder and IT pro tv has you covered from CompTIA to Cisco to EC Council and Microsoft there are more than 5,800 hours of on demand training they're engaging hosts, present information in a talk show format they're live every day, and shows go studio to web in just 24 hours. Courses are conveniently listed by category, certification, and job role to make them easy to find. You can stream IT Pro TV's courses live and on demand worldwide via Roku, Apple TV, PC, or their iOS or Android apps. So learn IT, pass your certs, and get a great job with IT Pro TV. Visit itpro.tv/networkbreak. You can get 30% off all plans. Use the promo code Network Break at checkout. That's itpro.tv/networkbreak. And use that promo code Network Break at checkout to save 30% off all plans. Uh, Back to the news, the Linux Foundation, they've announced a new project to create an open software ecosystem and architecture for DPUs and IPUs. The initiative is called the Open Programmable Infrastructure, or OPI Project. Founding members include NVIDIA, Intel, Marvell, Dell, and Red Hat.
1: Yeah, we talked about the Diamond Bluff project uh, six to eight weeks ago, where a group of DPU slash IPU vendors came together to start setting up some sort of open standards and interoperability. And that project uh, has now turned into the OPI, largely led by Red Hat from what I can see. And I think that's smart from Red Hat to try and get the hardware to be standardized so that they can consume any vendors. But I think also Dell uh, was a major player here. They would like to have some hardware to sell, but they want to have a standardized way to let it go to all of their customers, if that makes sense. And ultimately Intel's headed in that direction. I think uh, AMD slash Pensando would rather go down the proprietary and also NVIDIA to some extent would rather have a proprietary platform because they've already developed a bunch of custom APIs and custom SDN tooling. And they might feel that, you know, I wish we could have walled gardens because that's what they, you know, that's what they've got. But I suspect ultimately DPUs will be best served. So I wanted to link this to you to say that DPUs continue to iterate on. It's still my thesis that DPUs will be a significant um, part of the, the near future. A bit like SD WAN, it, it will emerge rapidly, but it'll take a long time to reach the enterprise data center. So they've moved the society over to the Linux Foundation. According to the speakers in the links in the show notes, you'll be able to watch some YouTube videos where they talk about what they're trying to achieve. Challenge with getting big companies to talk together, Drew, <laughs> is that lawyers. <laughs> Every time these companies talk together, unless they're in an open foundation, lawyers have to be on the call so they don't say. Right, right. <laughs> so there's no exchange of commercial information and patents aren't affected and all right. that sort of stuff. So by putting it in the Linux Foundation, it, it uh, simplifies the process of engaging. So
0: Yeah, I mean, we are, I think, seeing that tension between – it just always happens with hardware, especially chip-based hardware, where – you know, it'd be great if I could control the hardware and software stack, because then I can charge whatever I want for it. But if I have a hardware platform that's open to any kind of software, then I could mm. potentially sell more chips. So which way is better for me, the hardware maker, in the long run? Um, I, I do think NVIDIA is probably trying to see <laughs> which route it should go, so it's having a toe in both waters. Mm. Um, but I am pleased to see that NVIDIA and Intel and Marvell are both, uh, you know all three of them are part of this project, because they are some... Significant players in this DPU, IPU slash smart NIC yeah. market. So to have them sign on, I think is a good yeah. sign.
1: Yeah, it doesn't mean that they'll do it. Right. You know? <laughs> but at, <laughs> but least, at least they're there. There's some hope but at least right? There. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it's increasingly clear that there won't be just one vendor no. of DPUs. No. You know, uh, Nvidia slash Mellanox has had an enormous head start and they might have a dominant market position based on that head start that they've got and the fact that their technology is a long way ahead of most of the competitors. But I think over time, we'll see this, you know, not commoditized, but there won't be just one dominant supplier here. There'll be multiple players. And I think generally, that's a good idea. We do need a diversity of ASICs and approaches to give customers choices around what they want. And that said... You know, AWS develops their own. So, you know, if you're a certain type of company, you may actually just want to develop your own. I
0: have to say one sign that I find encouraging is that all of the documentation uses the DPU slash IPU nomenclature. And, you know, DPU is an NVIDIA term. (laughs) IPU is the Intel term. The fact that they could uh, decide to, you know, share this terminology together, I think, is at least one little sign of comedy uh, among these hardware vendors. It's a bit weird because IPU is actually trademarked
1: by Intel. So technically they can't use it.
0: I guess they maybe Hmm. they gave the Linux Foundation permission for this, then.
1: um, (laughs) Or maybe the people involved haven't had the lawyers turn up on their doorstep. (laughs) I guess that could be a future episode. (laughs) (laughs) All right, there's
0: links in the show notes if you want to find out more, and we will keep an eye on this uh, open project to see how it develops. But we'll move on. Uh, Stellantis, that's a parent company for automobile brands, including Fiat, Chrysler, Jeep, Opel, and others. They're going to halt production at a plant in France due to chip shortages. And Greg, uh, you've been kind of looking into why some kinds of silicon are in short supply and others aren't.
1: Yeah, well, we've talked a lot in the last four to eight weeks about the silicon shortages, and I think particularly we were talking about the shortage of Wi-Fi chipsets, and I wondered why Wi-Fi chipsets are on a two-year lead time, and yet Apple still got its iPhones coming shipping in a timely fashion. Is there something there that we don't know about You know, we know that Ethernet switch growth is continuing, but we also know that cars can't be produced. And what is the factor that separates that silicon shortage from the other silicon shortage? It wasn't entirely clear. So I've been looking deeper and searching for more information. And it turns out, um, so strap yourself (laughs) in, I've got an explanation. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) The silicon fabs are very complex production lines that are custom built for a specific process. So smartphone ASICs use the latest fabrication technologies at something like 7 nanometers or 5 nanometers. And the smaller they are, the less power they use, Uh, But they're much more complicated to engineer. And those chips sell for the highest prices because they've got the most value when they sell into the market. But older process sizes at 90 nanometers, 65 nanometers, 40 nanometers, 28 nanometers, 20 nanometers, are used to make chips for cars, for washing machines, and for power supplies, for example, Mm -hmm. right? So- Once the, you know, 10 years ago, 90 nanometer was a fab size for the latest generation of desktop CPU, and now it's down to 7 nanometer or 5 nanometer. So the older factories are there to produce chips for non-leading edge applications, but the older factories don't generally receive any investment to maintain capacity or to grow production. The first generation of production pays for the factory, and then the plant is operated until it's just no longer feasible. There's not enough customers for the particular process node. Or, you know, there's too much power or the water runs out or whatever it might be. So we've got these factories, there's these new factories, billions and billions of dollars, leading edge chips, and then there's this trail, long tail of factories producing older and older process nodes or size, you know, this nanometer thing. Um, And for a long time, the larger processes, no one was really much interested in them. But then all of a sudden... Cars wanted chips. Washing machines wanted chips. Refrigerators wanted chips. There was a great lot of demand for the older process nodes. And nobody was making extra capacity for those Mm. process nodes, and that's where the shortage is. And so now we have a situation where there's factories, they're 10 years old. Nobody wants to invest in the factories. There's a lot of demand for the older chips because they're looking to, they don't need the latest and greatest. And so what you have is... A situation where a lot more demand, older factories that were never all that efficient anyway, built for a different era, and there's no capacity to make those chips.
0: Got it. Okay, so a lack of investment in these older factories and older processes coupled with a sudden increase in demand means that's where we're getting a delay in these chips.
1: Yeah, and those factories, nobody wants to go and build... (laughs) Uh, you know, the older process nodes, you know, don't want to order the machines because those chips are very cheap, right? Right. The, the older, the companies who've got the factories can always just undercut you. Right, 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 right. <laughs> right? Because <laughs> they've they bought the factories and they've paid for them, you know, 10 years ago. And so they just produce and the chips are very cheap. So they've got no incentive to actually build more factories in that node. And so remember we talked about the US government and the European government and the Japanese governments are funding... Plants to be built in their countries, but they're on the older process nodes, this is where that start is. This is the start of um, building an industry, building a silicon fabrication skill set in your country by starting on the older process nodes. It's relatively cheap. There's a market for it. It's not all that complicated, but you've got to train workers, train the buying cycle, find a specialization. You've probably got to get universities to start spinning up courses on silicon design and silicon manufacturing and all that type of stuff. So it's it's a really interesting situation that, that it's going to take a very long time to solve these things and there's going to be a long cycle of literally billions of dollars of investment in obsolete technology because that's just the way it is.
0: That's interesting. Yeah, and you, fab itself is such a core component. I mean, we talked last week about TSMC putting out a press release to say, hey, we're buying the next generation of machine, and it's going to take us a year to get it installed and up and running because that's how complex this stuff is.
1: It's yeah. <laughs> You know the whole the whole game is bonkers. It's 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 an amazing business, but it's this thing. Like what we need is the older silicon fabs to grow to meet the new demand as silicon gets to new markets. But nobody wants to build those factories because they're too cheap, and the the comp- the incumbents who've got the factories um, have no incentive to build it because if even if they built them, they wouldn't be able to sell for a serious amount of money. So it is right, interesting. So this is
0: where we start mm-hmm. to get things like you know uh, government incentives, government sponsorship for this kind of thing.
1: Yeah. That's right. And that's why we're seeing vendors iterate to the latest. Now you might logically extend from this and say, well, this is why vendors are pushing into Wi-Fi 7. Because their current process nodes around Wi-Fi 6, 6E might be on 28 nanometer or 40 nanometer. And if they're gonna re-spin and redesign the chip to get to a modern process node, they might as well move up the standards mm-hmm. chain, if that yep. makes sense. Um because, you know, when you redesign your chip to work on a different fab, like Each fab is built out of a particular physical manufacturing process, and your chip has to be specifically designed for the fab that you're going to put it on. You can't just have one design works everywhere, as I understand it. And so it's very interesting that we might actually be seeing the new Ethernet chipsets are being pushed out because the capacity for production is actually only on the latest um, fab fabrication lines, which is the ones that have the capacity. Whereas the older production lines for older switches, they're booked up for cars and washing machines, so there's no point in building low-cost Ethernet oh, that's switches. That's interesting. Which is kind of an explanation yeah. for that, right? Why, why can I not buy a 1 gig or a 10 gig switch anymore? Well, those chips were built on a process that they can't get manufacturing space on, and so they just don't oh. build them.
0: All right, something to ponder. Uh, we will move on. Uh, Broadcom's proposed acquisition of VMware is going to come under intense scrutiny from European Union regulators over concerns that the deal could harm competition and lead to increased prices. According to a story in Seeking Alpha, the review could take up to a year.
1: Yeah, I think when we talked about it, I think I flagged that Broadcom did say that it could take up to the end of 2023 before the deal goes through. And in the back of my mind, it was the EU, although in principle, EU doesn't have much stake in this, except that it can intervene because it can choose to do so if it wishes. Um, in the same way that the US got involved in the ARM right. sale, right. sale. So even though the ARM is a UK company, the US government got involved and said that ARM should not be sold. Um, you know, in the recent buyout bids that going on with Qualcomm and so forth. The the case here, I think, would be is that VMware is a critical piece of infrastructure, and that if it was given to an overly large company, then it would have some sort of dominant market power. Now that's a there's not a direct thing here. It's not like Broadcom is buying a competitor. I think it's more about the the governments worldwide have realized that just large technology companies become inherently bad for customers when they're large. And in particular, Broadcom's basically said that VMware is going to get more expensive, for no particular ad but add little value (laughs) and maybe they want to take it on from the point of view of why are you going to charge more for the same product if you're not doing anything to earn it?
0: Yeah, the the stories I read basically said the concerns were that Broadcom was going to increase prices which is why they're taking uh, I guess an extra look at this. Um, I I guess I feel like I don't quite understand how it's anti-competitive in that VMware already dominates the market and VMware itself outside of Broadcom could decide to just raise prices if it wanted, so I, I guess hmm. uh, Broadcom, of course, has signaled that yes, it is going yeah. to raise prices. So, uh,
1: yeah. Well, on the other hand, VMware is a twelve billion dollar revenue per year, you know, markup cap of sixty billion at Broadcom pricing. That's not overly right. huge, right? So the government can readily control it by knocking on the door and saying, "Please stop that." <laughs> but when you get to a bigger company like Apple, you can't really tell Apple what to do, or Facebook, or you know, Tesla. And I think increasingly the government are saying we don't want to see mega-sized technology companies because they don't they they, they have too they much power to just by uh-huh. being mm-hmm. large. Yeah, um, maybe that's what we're seeing here. And and I'm I'm sensitive to that. I think it is a little bit, you know, it's a thin a thin line. But I think Facebook's basically proven that over the last, and maybe they've broken the system against that. So. It,
0: I guess I could see that because this is not, to eye eyes a potentially uh, a typical antitrust thing. You know, if Broadcom wanted to buy another chip mm. maker, then you could say, well, that's too much uh, power in, in one central market, but this is a hardware vendor buying a software company, and so, yeah, I'm not seeing the anti-competitive take, but yeah. I could see just be- we're too big and too much power take.
1: Yeah, that might be. I mean, I'm just yeah. guessing. Who yeah. knows. We'll, we'll find out as time goes by. But if you wanted to take a speculative guess, that would be my, my angle. All right, we'll yep. keep
0: an eye on that story, but we will also move on. Uh, an open source intelligence service called Mofar is claiming that a World War II Enigma encryption machine was stolen from a museum in Kiev during the Russian invasion, but the researchers at Mofar tracked it down and Ukrainian security services have recovered it.
1: Yeah, this is kind of a feel-good story, although I haven't seen it confirmed anywhere. So I want to express a certain amount of doubt here. Um, the MOLFA website doesn't mention anything about it, but I like the idea of the story that something was stolen and a security, an IT security organisation, has managed to track down this fairly unique um, piece of museum technology. Certainly, the Russian army has been infamously stealing <laughs> all sorts of things. Apparently, the other day they stole a solar uh, power farm. Wow! Uh, it's the largest solar energy farm in Europe. And apparently they've been dismantling it for two months and literally shipped it off to Russia. Um, So sort of, you know, aside from selling Ukrainian grain to its own customers to make money and so forth, this is the sort of thing that is happening Mm -hmm. there. So these guys finding it and then tracking it down and getting a hand of it when somebody tried to sell it on eBay or whatever, I think that's good. So if you see something like that, Maybe say something and maybe get in contact with somebody, see what we can do for it and recover it. You know, the history yeah, of the. Yeah, it Ukraine. sounds like this
0: was a case of looting and then this thing showed up on an online auction site and this open source intelligence company tracked down the seller and then turned that seller's information over to the Ukrainian security service, who's then reached out and said, Hey, we'd like to speak yeah. with you about this. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, they uncovered who the mm-hmm. seller was <laughs> mm-hmm. and sent in the secret security service of the Ukraine. So, bad day for them I think potentially. So. Again, just expressing some caution as to whether this is true or not. I'm not right. 100% sure. All right,
0: we're going to wrap up with a story from the Stupid Marketing Tricks file. MasterCard, the credit card company, has dropped a music album on Spotify. It's called Priceless, and the album features 10 songs, each of which, quote, incorporates the recognizable melody of MasterCard's brand sound.
1: Uh, Drew, now, first of all, I'm going to have to pull you up there. It's not Priceless. It's Priceless registered trademark. <laughs> Very important. (laughs) Forget me, (laughs) MasterCard. (laughs) uh, I've managed to get through four or five, six, seven songs on the album. And let me also assure you uh, that the concept of a recognizable melody of MasterCard's brand sound is not there. I'm not sure what it sounds like, but I haven't heard it yet. Have you listened to it? I
0: (laughs) haven't listened to it. I don't want to encourage uh, this kind of thing. I actually, frankly, I don't know what MasterCard's Uh, brand sound is anyway. So I guess uh, the recognizable melody would be lost on me. (laughs)
1: Perhaps so. Uh, if you if you want a copy of it, I'll drop a link to the Spotify playlist in the show notes. <laughs> but I do want to point out that uh, album thirteen. There's a remix done by Timberland, no less. Oh. So. Uh, they must have paid some serious bucks to get this album put together. And I'd say that the production values are hot, top level. So there's some big names on this. <laughs> oh, okay. Boy. I guess if MasterCard has
0: some money to throw around. I, this this just seems like an idea that like a few dads cooked up uh, to try to impress their teens and the teens are like, yeah, whatever.
1: Yeah, let's go and hang out with Timberland. <laughs> Come on, kids. And, you know, <laughs>
0: right. right. It's for the selfies. It it's was like for the selfies.
1: <laughs> once upon a time, it was corporate golf or having a box at the basketball. Now it's getting, <laughs> <laughs> okay.
0: no, it's getting, it's getting Timberland to show up.
1: Up, yes. Yeah, getting a corporate album going so you've got an excuse to hang out with people that you wish you were as as cool Mm. as. Oh, All right. (laughs) That
0: wraps up the news portion of the show. (laughs) Uh, Don't forget our live stream on Tuesday, the 28th. Uh, You can sign up for that at packetpushers.net slash live. And now stand by for our sponsored conversation with Nokia on streaming telemetry. It's starting right now.
1: Today, we welcome sponsor Nokia back to the Tech Bytes podcast to discuss the value of streaming telemetry in a modern network. Now, polling with SNP. Works, sort of, but it's not enough as network complexity increases, and also as we move into networks with higher speed, more applications, and more sophisticated and complex electronics, we need to know more about what's happening. And so what we want to do is talk about the value of streaming telemetry and a bit on how nokia's sr linux that's the network operating system that uh, nokia has brought to the market how it particularly enables the capabilities of streaming telemetry our guest today is erwan james he's a product line manager at nokia erwan let's just go straight into the topic what is streaming telemetry and what is its value let's just set a baseline around that
2: so streaming telemetry is a mechanism to extract data from devices it's meant to extract data efficiently, rapidly extract a large amounts of data and send them to multiple clients uh, efficiently.
1: So I think the key thing here is that streaming telemetry is pushed from the device to the server. And that's a radically different to the way SNMP is pulled by the server. But more importantly, you configure the device to send data as needed. And that's not necessarily, so there's a lot more emphasis on what the device has to do, right?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So if you think about a device sending data to multiple clients, for instance, mm. a device can now batch send to multiple clients. So it needs to needs to collect the data once locally on, on, on itself and send it to multiple clients versus responding to clients and multiple clients coming and requesting for the same amount of data. So from efficiency standpoint, the device itself is able to manage uh, how and when it collects data based on its own workloads and then send it to multiple clients at one go instead of having to respond to multiple clients asking for the same amount of data set.
1: Right. There's a significant change there because now the NOS can actually decide, depending on available resources, memory, storage, CPU cycles, when to batch up the streaming telemetry and then to stream it out to the management system.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And then that then ties into, it's able to do that at a slower pace if it's extremely busy based on its own application workload, as you mentioned, Mm -hmm. but also it's able to do this very rapidly, right? So... Uh, one of the advantages of doing something like a uh, server to client method here where the 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 server being the device is that it can actually push changes as soon as the data changes as you mentioned earlier Mm -hmm. and so you can get very rapid updates on certain amounts of your data set because as soon as that data changes as long as the device is able to send the data it will send the data and so you don't need to rely on polling or potentially uh you know snmp traps were kind of a mechanism to do this on some of the the paths inside the the devices uh originally Uh, now you can do on change streaming telemetry on essentially any state path. And that includes, you know, obviously your, your operational state, but also your, you know, uh, statistical uh, information, like interface statistics and Mm -hmm. and errors and so on and so forth.
0: Yeah. Can you provide a little bit more context on what you mean by streaming telemetry and what I'm getting that I might not get from SNMP?
2: Yeah. So you, I mean, you're getting potentially the same data, except you're getting it more rapidly, more efficiently. And one of the, the key drivers is actually more accurately. So SNMP uh, misses out on device device timestamping. So actually, when you receive data from um, an SNMP speaker, the, the time in which you receive it is a time in which you uh, you potentially collect it and graph it and so on and so forth. And so if there's any sort of network delays between the clients, between the device or between the, 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 the client receiving the, the data, or if the device itself is busy in replying to a poll from an SNMP client, for instance, um, then that gets reflected in your data set. Whereas something like streaming telemetry, uh, you actually timestamp the data on the device itself before you're sending out to the client. And so if there's any network delay, if there's any queuing that happens in a network, if there's any delays on a device itself while it's doing its batching, that doesn't affect the actual granularity uh, and the accuracy of, uh, of the data being sent uh, from the device.
0: So I'm getting a more accurate view of the actual device performance because of the way the data is being timestamped as opposed to when it's sent.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And additionally, you're getting more granular data. So I think uh, it's it's well known that in, in an SNMP world, you're polling every second for interface statistics, for instance. And you don't get sub-second accuracy. Uh, with something like streaming telemetry, uh, you can actually send data a sub-second. If you do it on on change, you, you are literally sending the data as soon as it changes. And so if you're having large amounts of data changing very quickly, you can actually send that large amount of data very quickly, timestamped to be accurate such that your client can do something intelligent with the data.
1: Mm. Right. And I think there's there's one example that I can think of is if you've got a failing SFP module, for example, that could be a high priority alert. But if you're streaming telemetry about how much data is flowing off the interface, you can just batch that up and dispatch it any time in the next 60 seconds sort of thing.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Mm.
1: So, how did you address this with SR Linux? Because the you know one of the things I just talked about there was streaming telemetry could have high priority messages, low priority messages it could have um, short bursts of messages that are low bandwidth or low CPU, or bulk messages where you're actually streaming flow records. There's a whole value chain of how the operating system for the device, in the case of Nokia, it's SR Linux. How does it do it better in this way?
2: SR Linux was uh, built around the concept of streaming telemetry. And what I mean by that is that historically devices were uh, using MIBs as data models, they're using SNMP to extract data from them. And when streaming telemetry came to market as the kind of next generation technology to extract that data, oftentimes the mechanism in which they were able to put this onto the existing operating system was a bolt-on model. Mm-hmm. And so there was no underlying fundamental change in network operating system. So all the mechanisms in the network operating system itself used to collect its own data was still based around the concept of, you know, MIBs. It was still built around the concept of SNMP and they bolted on the streaming telemetry and these Yang data models on top of it. Where the problem lies in doing so is that you actually have and had a model where some of the data was accessible in streaming telemetry, but not all, right? As time went on, vendors were adding paths to Yang, adding streaming telemetry paths. So you had a model and you still do, in fact, have a model in a lot of operating systems where Yes, they claim support for streaming telemetry, but really have to sp- stay within the, the, the bounds of what is accessible, which may not be the entire data set on the switch. And then secondly is the performance, right? Mm. So we talked about an, uh, the need to provide you know, efficient, accurate, rapid, granular, sub-second uh, data. Well, this only works in a model where the operating system itself is able to collect that information efficiently and actually, you know, extract that information to the uh, to the streaming telemetry client uh in in that mechanism the moment you start bolting on a mechanism for the device to try and do this you're going to run into some issues in one of those areas maybe you're not as accurate maybe not as granular maybe not as efficient but you can do it rapidly
1: and that's one of the things that we certainly found with the first generation of api driven network operating systems was the api was just a copy of the cli wrapped in you know uh, some sort of operand you know like Curly, a uh, square, pointy brackets, or something like that, but it was just the CLI. But really, that's the net. The world has moved on from there to make things like I really want my system telemetry data to give me much more detailed insights than SNMP could ever do it. Like the one that I'm thinking of is on change. If you make a change to the configuration, or if an interface goes up or down, you don't want to have to wait for the polling engine to come and fetch it. You need it to instantly drop up a signal and send off saying something changed.
2: Yeah, absolutely, and you can think of other things like microburst detection, for instance. Right. Mm. So when you're historically a SNMP, you're pulling every second interface stats, and you're you're basically that's how your that's how accurate your data set is going to be. But you miss a lot of data, and nowadays, you know, we talk a lot about chipsets and what they can perform, and and we talk a lot about microbursting. And so microbursting is something that you wouldn't necessarily be able to detect with SNMP, where streaming telemetry on change. Mm. As soon as that data set is changing, if you're dropping packets on a specific state leaf or if you're you know able to detect it in the operating system itself then you can stream that out and you can detect mm-hmm. those types of problems which makes you allows you to make better decisions in terms of what hardware and what software you should be running on your in your data center switches
1: and i guess you can also add stuff to the api you don't have to like snmp you don't have arcane asn1 notation adding stuff to the api you can just add what you need for example
2: absolutely uh, yeah, and specifically sr linux uses yang data models
1: You know, the Yang model actually self describes what it is. The XML field data set actually says this field does this and actually describes it. So when the server receives it, this is the value of Yang and XML is it's fully described and the server should know whether it should do something with it or not.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, And it just makes it easier for clients to manage the data. It makes it uh, uh, easier for clients to uh, parse the data and build that application that can actually make use of that data. So I've got a question,
0: you know, there's this, I guess, notion in operations and sort of visibility that more data is always better, but if uh, I don't have a way to consume that data, to contextualize it, extract value from it, it's just noise. So how are you addressing that in that I'm not just getting overwhelmed with information from a streaming telemetry option?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So, and this is where Fabric Services systems come into play. So, you know, we talk about streaming telemetry and the ability to extract you know, highly accurate, rapid, efficient, and large amounts of data. Uh, But if you can't do anything useful with that large amounts of data, well, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of pointless, right? Right. And so it really comes down to deciding whether or not your core business is dealing with large data sets. And if your core business is dealing with large data sets, you can potentially um, do some of your your own analytical information and analytics on the data to make decisions about your network and decisions about your business that relate to the network. Now, if your core business is not dealing with large amounts of data, then you want some piece of software to actually collect this large amounts of data. So make use of what's available from the technology standpoint in your new operating system uh, and make allows you to make better decisions and suggest decisions that should be made on your behalf based on this large amounts of uh, data that's collected. Mm. And so what we brought to the table with Fabric Services System is actually that client collector, right? So it's a piece of software that's able to extract these large amounts of data set. It's that piece of software that's able to store large amounts of data sets, and additionally, it's that piece of data is able to extract and bring up and visible to the operator uh, information from that large amount of data set so that they can then make easier and uh, mm. better decisions with their network.
1: So this is where Fabric Services System comes in. This is your uh, data center SDN intent controller that actually lets you create a data center network out of Nokia appliances running SR Linux. It's a tool that lets you you consume streaming telemetry, right?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So the entire, all the data we retrieve from uh, the devices uh, into the Fabric Services system is actually using streaming telemetry. So we don't use any CLI scraping. We don't use SNMP. The entirety of the data set that we're using uh, is coming from streaming telemetry. So all of your logs, all of your events, alarms, all of your uh, interface statistics, all of your observability data, that's all coming from streaming telemetry uh, from SR-Linux into Fabric Services system and then uh, extracted for the user. Can you also
0: support if I've already got, you know, some open source tools or some customized tools, can I uh, use those as targets for the streaming telemetry and, and analytics on top?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So from, from an SR Linux standpoint, there's no restrictions in terms of what client you use. We use GenomeI as the protocol for streaming telemetry. Okay. Um, so what you'll need in that case is to have a collector, of course, a database to store the information, and then of course, the mechanisms to extract the data, whether it's visualize it or create some sort of events. Um, so you need various pieces of software to put it all together. Um, and like I said, from an SRLNX standpoint, you know, it's, uh, it's the standards base, It's, uh, it's based on, on the GNMI spec, and there's really nothing stopping you from using your own tooling to do so.
0: Right. GNMI is one of these sort of emerging modern protocols for streaming telemetry or any kind of export of data to a collector.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think it's probably the, the primary, uh, and. I'm not sure of many others to be honest stream telemetry <laughs> protocols out there so um, yeah. de facto default uh, but it is it is uh very much so used uh, more and more so in the industry today and I think we'll see a, a larger adoption of GNMI as a whole um mm. from from most most vendors today So what I'm
0: hearing is if I've set up my own analytics suite using open source or whatever tools, uh, I can be confident knowing that you speak GNMI, that I can get it into my systems to then do the analysis, the visualization, and so on, Mm. if I don't want to use Fabric Services system.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: Yeah, I think it's worth noting that there are a number of open source tools, but as I've noticed, there are a number of ways you can actually stream (laughs) telemetry into open source tools, but it's a fair amount of work to keep those tools going and updated yeah, like, and, and structured and so forth.
2: Yeah, exactly. And like I mentioned earlier, just coming back to my point about your core business, you know, it's one thing to stand up a set of tools in a lab to, to collect streaming telemetry, which I think I would encourage everyone to do, especially with uh, uh, our, you know, our public SR Linux container that's available um, for all to use. Uh, you can you can use these tools, you can use these various collectors, whether it be Telegraph or GMIC, and you can use these databases like Prometheus and Grafana to graph it. And this mm-hmm. is very usable, uh, but once you start collecting large amounts of data set and actually mm. to analyze these large amounts of data set, and and this is where if your core business is not uh, to deal with this, and your core business is not to develop tools, and your core business is not <laughs> to support open source tools, <laughs> then then this is where Fabric Services Systems comes into place, yeah, that's right? right? Yeah. Now that
1: well, I think I think that's uh, the days of using open source to manage your networks, to some extent, may be passing us by because the commercial tools are actually becoming viable compared to where we were. Remember years ago when network management tools were awful and open source yeah. was actually better because, in a way. Does that make sense? Um, because, But I'm also thinking like we've done podcasts over the last six months where we've talked about how fabric services system is an intent-based, uses a model. The model gives you a digital sandbox where you can actually pre-validate all of your configurations. The fabric services systems does all the configuration of the network. This streaming telemetry handling is just one part of that overall solution. You don't have to, it does all the other stuff as well.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And actually just tie it back to a digital sandbox. I think in our previous podcast, we talked about that digital twin Mm. on a fabric services system called digital sandbox and how we were actually able to extract state from the real network to store that in digital sandbox in order to represent that in those lab environments, right? So you had an exact digital twin, including all the state. Now the only mechanism way we can do this is actually by able to extract this data from the devices as efficiently and rapidly as possible and as accurately as possible. Right. So you yeah. can kind of tie it all together from fabric services system yeah. perspective is that you, you, you're extracting that state and how do you extract a state? Well, in our case it's streaming telemetry.
1: And I think the important part here is that this one tool is not only streaming telemetry, but also the configuration, the monitoring, the operational state and the configuration validation. It's also your audit and a whole bunch of other things as well. And wrapping that all together is is really the whole thing. Streaming telemetry is what we've talked about today, but fabric services system is sort of like the whole operational piece Is is the point I wanted to drag across.
2: Yeah, absolutely correct. Yeah.
1: Well, unfortunately, that's just about all the time that we've got for today. Thanks very much to Erwan for joining us and thanks to Nokia for sponsoring today's show. We've got a bunch of links that you can go and follow. They're going to be in the show notes on the Packer Pushers website, but you can go to nokia.ly slash fabric-services-system where you can find out more about fabric services and you'll find a whole bunch of information there. And there are more links there about the data center fabric solution if you're interested. Don't forget to look into our archives. You can hear us talking with Erwan and other people from the Nokia team about their data center solution and the different angles that you might want to approach it. As we said, Fabric Services System not only takes in the streaming telemetry and does something useful with it, you also does the configuration and the intent and the SDN and all those things that you want. As always, you can find this and many more fine free technical podcasts along with our community blog at packetpushes.net. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, rate us on LinkedIn, tell your friends because that helps us all staying around here. And remember that too much networking would never be enough.